has been contained again on Highway 9, and that is the Rincon Fire, and that should be cleared up fairly quickly. And now it is time for Planet Watch, but I had totally blanked on loading up the sound for the intro, so I'm just going to toss it on over, and we'll begin. Welcome to Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. Planet Watch is a program that focuses on big solutions to Earth-sized problems. Today on the program, a conversation with one of the world's leading atmospheric scientists, Brian Toon, about how we acted to save the ozone layer, the problem with sulfur geoengineering, and how his research played a role in reducing nuclear weapons worldwide. That's coming up in just a moment after we do a few top science stories. But first, we'd like to remind you how to get our program in case... You can't listen live. Yeah, you can. We have a podcast to which you can s subscribe at planetwatchradio.com. And you can participate in today's show once we get the interview with Brian Toon going by either posting a question or comment on Facebook. You go to facebook.com and then put in Planet Watch Radio. Or you can email us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. Note that's kind of the reverse from the website and the podcast subscription site, which is planetwatchradio.com. But if you want to email us, you can go to radioplanetwatch at gmail.com, and we'll do our best to get your questions or comments to our guest. And, and you we'd can like go to, on Facebook as well. Right. Yeah, and we'd like to thank uh, MZ, Mike Zwirling of KSCO, for sponsoring this program. If you go on Facebook, you can ask your question there, and uh, Tommy, our intern, will relay it to our guest. So there's a number of ways you can interact with the program, and we always welcome your thoughts, questions, comments, and inquiries about what we're talking about. And today's a doozy because our guest has been involved with so many key moments in science informing major policy shifts that it's bound to be a very interesting moment especially given all the intense news of the past week having to do with climate change some of which we're going to share with you here today um, we're going to start out uh, with tommy martin our intern doing a story for us the guardian news reports on a new study showing that in german nature preserves over 75 percent of the insect populations have vanished in the past 25 years this is in areas protected from pesticides. Insects are an integral part of life on Earth as both essential pollinators and prey for other wildlife. Important species such as butterflies were on the decline as well. But the newly, re but the newly revealed scale of the loss of to all insects has prompted warnings that the world is, quote, on course for ecological Armageddon. With profound impacts on human society, the main culprits are pesticides, clearing of wildlands for farming, and climate change. Professor Dave Goulson of Sussex University, UK, said if we lose the insects, there will be a domino effect on the planet's food chains, causing ec ecological collapse. The German study is echoed by other studies in Puerto Rico in the proceedings of the National Academy of Science, which showed a 10 to 60% decline in insects and a corresponding decline in lizards, frogs, and birds that eat them. It's uh, rather sobering to think about this domino effect happening, and um, there are things we can do about that. We talked here about banning certain pesticides and the importance of doing that. That's just one of many things we could do that would have a profound impact. And, of course, um, insects aren't that popular, especially mosquitoes, and people often think, well, you know, what's the harm if they just go away? They're mm -hmm. pests. Um, but those people don't realize they are the basis for 
the entire food chain in, in all ecological steps above them. And we are, of course, at the top of that food chain. Much of our agriculture depends on pollinators. And I don't think a few drones are going to replace them. <laughs> so. Yeah, most people like to eat. And that, that alone is uh, a reason to be concerned about uh, some, some of these effects on, uh, you know, the, the tiny creatures. Of course, there are people who say that in the future we're going to be eating insects. However, even that, <laughs> we won't be able to do that if the insects are dying off <laughs> in droves. You know, there's a restaurant now, I think, in the U.K. that's serving mealyworm burgers, and people are eating them. It's really <laughs> interesting. So let's save the mealyworms and save the humans. That's our new motto. Um, another story um, on the climate change front. Uh, last week... Extinction Rebellion launched as an international movement that will use mass civil disobedience to force governments to immediately establish a World War II-type effort to fight climate change. Over 100 European scientists joined over 1,000 nonviolent protesters in London last week. The newly formed group Extinction Rebellion seeks to push the UK government to declare a state of emergency, work toward a carbon-free economy by 2025, and convene an assembly of ordinary citizens to plan out the country's carbon-free future. The group's message has caught on in the wake of increasingly dire reports about the pace of climate change. More on that in a moment. Organizers had expected a few hundred to show up in the opening salvo near the seat of UK government. Instead, more than a thousand came and decided to block one of London's busiest intersections for more than two hours. The movement has the support of the prominent UK activists, academics, politicians, and thinkers, including Green Party member of European Parliament Molly Scott Cato. And if you go on our web on our Facebook page, you can hear a, sh a speech by journalist and environmentalist George Monbiot, who spoke at Wednesday's protest. He was a guest on our show about a year ago, and you can go to our archives and hear his talk with us on Planet Watch. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this brings up, uh, well, I've got a couple stories, a short one and a long one, and I think I'll do the short one first because it kind of relates to what Rachel just uh, told us. Uh, big news happened this week. It's kind of just preliminary, but it's still big. <laughs> that is the Our Children's Trust lawsuit uh, had been held up by the U.S. Supreme Court. It had been given a stay, uh, but that stay has been lifted so that that case can go ahead and go to court now. This is uh, a case where uh, a bunch of uh, children or, or very young people are suing the U.S. government for not taking action to protect the environment for their future life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And uh, they uh, have a substantial case that is now going to be heard. And this uh, development uh, came up just in the past week or so. In fact, uh, the, the two dissenting justices were Thomas and Gorsuch, not Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh actually went, or went along with uh, lifting the stay. Maybe because he's a father. <laughs> Might be. Maybe people look yeah, at it that way. Yeah. Who knows why they do what they do. We can only read their dissenting and uh, assenting yeah. comments on the court to see why they thought that. Mm -hmm. So stay tuned on that case. That's going to be a landmark case that uh, is fundamental. And uh, the second story, uh, which actually leads into our guest, who we now have online, um, is uh, about the oceans. And, uh, well, this past week, uh, scientists in France, Germany, China, and the United States came up with a rather staggering 
report. In fact, I think it was released on Halloween. <laughs> kind of scary news, extra scary. We already had scary news from the IPCC that things are way worse than we thought, and uh, we got to act a lot faster to you know get rid of carbon emissions into the atmosphere and so on. Uh, well, this one showed that, hey, the oceans, which are the big lurking behemoth <laughs> that is storing massive amounts of carbon. In fact, it stores over 90% of the excess heat. They, they store carbon, but they also star, store the heat, the excess heat that the human race is putting into the atmosphere. Um, it's the rate at which they are storing that heat is uh, like 60% more, maybe, than what we had thought. And there's a whole story about how they determined this. But the point is that this stuff is going to come roaring back into the atmosphere at some point and making it a lot harder to meet even our <laughs> whatever our most ambitious targets are now for limiting the temperature rise globally. So we have even more work cut out for us and a lot sooner and so it's really time to get on with it. So something like that uh, thing in uh, in the Europe that uh, Rachel just told us about is uh, the kind of thing we're going to have to see a lot of. Well anyway, so now Rachel's going to introduce Brian Toon and uh, we'll uh, talk some more about that and many other global issues. Yes, and it's nice to be able to have someone on board with us who has studied the atmosphere and ocean uh, his entire career. Brian Toon is a professor of atmospheric and oceanic sciences at the University of Colorado at Boulder, which is where my parents met, by the way. <laughs> Brian studies radiative transfer aerosol and cloud physics, atmospheric chemistry, and parallels between the Earth and the planets. He has helped conceive, develop, and lead many NASA airborne field missions aimed at understanding stratospheric volcanic clouds, stratospheric ozone loss, and the effects of aircraft on the atmosphere. During the arms race of the 1980s, Brian's research into the concept of nuclear winter, the idea that the Earth would become uninhabitably cold if a nuclear war broke out, helped shift the policies of the U.S. and the then-Soviet Union, resulting in a drastic reduction of nuclear weapons. His research into the thinning ozone layer also led to banning of CSC, so let's just say he's an influential guy, and we're glad to have him on the show. Thank you, Brian, for being here with us. Well, thank you for having me, Rachel. Absolutely. So I guess we'll start by, uh, it's hard to know when, where to begin, but we have a lot of, to talk about. Let's first talk about your ozone research and what we might have learned um, from that, both in terms of science and, and where it is now, but also in terms of how science can affect policy. So let's start with uh, how you figured out we had a problem. Uh, well, there's sort of an embarrassing story there in that NASA satellites, which were observing the ozone in the Antarctic, um, thought their instruments were malfunctioning, and so they disregarded their data, while a group of British scientists sitting out on the ice measured significant ozone losses going on. They kept telling NASA about this and kept being ignored. So they finally published their results, and um, the uh, NASA scientists then went back and found that someone had inserted a line in a code that said if the ozone is lower than some quantity, it's an error, throw it out. Um, and after that, um, the satellite record has been continuous since um, around 1980 or earlier, and we've seen the development of a growing ozone hole in Antarctica, and then um, in fact, the largest ozone hole on record occurred in um, 2015. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've also seen significant ozone loss in the Arctic. Um, so we have a pretty good record of ozone loss. 
And over time, there have been many satellites measuring the chemicals responsible for this and aircraft programs to go in and make detailed measurements of the chemistry happening there. Um, so we have a pretty good idea of why the ozone hole formed. Um, and, of course, um, as a consequence of that, um, the Montreal Protocol um, was agreed upon um, to uh, reduce the chlorine compounds and bromine compounds that were being used in industrial chemicals and um, were the things that actually caused the ozone hole to form. Yeah, I think it's an interesting fact that about four-fifths of the chlorine that's in the stratosphere is of human origin. <laughs> it's not from, you know, sea salt or anything like that, but four-fifths of it. Now, that may be lowering now as uh, the Montreal Protocol takes effect. And, and that story that Brian just told is pretty amazing and worth just summarizing briefly. The, the computers were programmed to throw out data that was as outrageous as what they were seeing, and yet it was real. <laughs> it wasn't until several years later when they finally said, well, let's look at the raw data tapes, <laughs> you know, from, from the American satellites. And lo and behold, there it was. It's just they hadn't figured out. Uh, I mean, we knew from uh, Sherwood, uh, uh, Roland and Molina, who have since won the Nobel Prize, that it was expected that those chemicals were going to do a number on ozone. But nobody had the slightest inkling it would be happening in the polar regions where we're not emitting those chemicals and that was the part that brian and others were involved in figuring out it was these high altitude clouds uh, that are natural clouds but they provide crystal surfaces on which these reactions take place extremely rapidly so dr tunin just in case that the listeners don't totally understand the benefits of having an ozone layer and not having holes in it can you explain without uh, a good thick ozone what would be the harm to life on earth uh, well, if we didn't have any ozone layer, uh, life probably wouldn't be possible on the surface of the Earth. And in fact, that's why some people think the um, uh, origin of creatures living on the ground, on the land, didn't happen until um, somewhere between 500 and 600 million years ago, or till exactly when the first things migrated out on the land. And, but before that, there had been billions of years of life in the oceans where it protected itself from ultraviolet light from the sun. But um, the ozone layer evidently became um, thick enough, and it isn't really very thick. There's, there's only enough ozone in the atmosphere that if you brought it down to the surface, it would be a, a layer that was only a few millimeters thick. Um, so there's not that much ozone there, but nevertheless, it's very good at absorbing ultraviolet sunlight. So it's like sunglasses, and um, it uh, keeps the ultraviolet light from hitting you. And ultraviolet light, uh, the photons there have a lot of energy, and they're capable of tearing apart DNA molecules. Um, so uh, it's very dangerous to be exposed to ultraviolet light in high amounts. Um, so we get um, even now skin cancers um, and cataracts um, and things like that because of exposure to sunlight and without the ozone layer it, those problems would be much worse and are people living near the poles uh, having trouble with those things because it is thinning in certain parts of the year well of course nobody lives in antarctica <laughs> so that's uh, uh fortunate that we had such a big uh, ozone drop occur in a place where um, it's basically uninhabited 
Um, there are and, some animals uh, there that might be having trouble, but we wouldn't know that. And most of them are in the ocean, I suppose, not on land. Yeah, the only thing on the land are some penguins, um, which, as far as I know, haven't had any problems because of the ozone loss there. Um, and, of course, it's you know not that much sunlight when the ozone hole is present. You know, it begins in September and, uh, you know, it's sort of gone by November. Um, so the, you know, basically what happens is the ozone is lost there, but it's trapped by winds in sort of a test tube in the atmosphere. And those winds break down in October and November and distribute the air across the globe where the ozone loss is diluted by other air which has ozone remaining in it. Um, there have been a several percent loss, though, of ozone at mid-latitudes in both hemispheres uh, because of these chemicals. Um, you know, so there there are mid-latitude ozone losses, and they probably are contributing slightly to um, increased skin cancers and um, cataract um, problems. You know, but those are fairly um, small effects, so they're difficult to. Um, assigned directly to the ozone loss because they're just not that big. So during the Montreal Protocols, as I understand it, we banned certain chemicals. And um, does that mean the ozone layer will eventually heal? <laughs> is it healable or does it mean we stopped it from getting bigger? Well, there are several lessons here. Um, so Joe already mentioned that um, the major source of chlorine to the atmosphere is sea salt. And um, nobody banned sea salt. Um, nobody banned bleach or the kinds of chlorine that you put in your hot tub or swimming pool. Um, so there's lots of types of chlorine that are water-soluble, and so the rain just washes them quickly out of the atmosphere. But these industrial chemicals um, were developed and used because they were very chemically inert and generally not soluble in water. Um, so they, um, you know, they were safe for people to use, and they had nice physical properties. So you could put them in your um, compressor to make your refrigerator work or your air conditioner work, and they uh, were very common in foams that insulated refrigerators and things like that. Um, so they, they had great properties, um, and a lot of those properties were because these gases were so chemically inert. Um, and that's what Sherry Rolina and, um, and um, Molina and um, Sherry Rowland um, discovered in the 1970s that these compounds would get up into the upper atmosphere, 30, 40 kilometers above the surface, and the sunlight would break them down, and then the chlorine molecules or chlorine atoms could come loose and attack ozone. So they thought that around 2050, which is still 30 years from now, that we would begin to lose ozone at high altitude because of these chlorine becoming loose. <clears throat> and instead of, and that's what they got their Nobel Prize for, a prediction about something that hasn't happened yet. Um, however, you know, unbeknownst to everybody, the, uh, these compounds, once they release the chlorine, that could... Um, react on cloud surfaces and um, we didn't even know there were clouds in the stratosphere at the time um, but there turned out to be clouds um, in the polar night over Antarctica where it's extremely cold and you get ice clouds forming there but you also get clouds of nitric acid 
Um, so these were the only second time we discovered clouds in the Earth's atmosphere. We knew about water, obviously, but there are clouds there of nitric acid, and um, those clouds can drive the ozone chemistry with the chlorine and cause it to be destroyed. So that was a big surprise when that was discovered. And, um, and so the Montreal Protocol was really designed with a couple of ideas in mind. The first one is that people had already tried to ban these compounds before in the 1970s because they were being used in spray cans, and so they banned the use in spray cans. So that was a mistake because industry just started using it in other stuff. Uh, so the Montreal Protocol bans the use of these compounds, not, not the, I'm sorry, the production of them, not their use. So banning the use didn't get anywhere. They just used them for something else. You had to ban the production. Hmm. And the other thing the Montreal Protocol did was it said, well, we're not that smart. We don't know exactly what's happening. We don't know what might happen in the future. We don't know what other compounds might come up. So it called for periodic reviews of this problem. And so over the decades since the protocol came into force, more compounds have been banned because of their destructive abilities toward ozone, but also because many of them are very powerful greenhouse gases. And so this has caused industry to retool several times. They had to get rid of the original compounds, and they went to other compounds that still contain chlorine, but washed out pretty rapidly. Uh, and then they had to retool again and go to compounds that had no chlorine, which is where we are now. And now we're about to go to a final step, which is to get rid of the compounds that are um, um, very powerful greenhouse gases and go to others that are not so powerful greenhouse gases. So the Montreal Protocol was a very successful political agreement and it had those important ban production and allow for the fact that you don't know everything and you don't want to keep going back to the politicians. Every time a new discovery comes up, you, you want to be able to deal with it um, immediately without having to go through a political process. Right. If you just joined us, this is Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, and we're speaking with Dr. Brian Toon. I'm here with Joe Jordan. You can email us a question or a comment, radioplanetwatch at gmail.com, or else go to Facebook and then Planet Watch Radio. And uh, Tommy Martin will take your question and relay it to us. I wasn't exactly sure if you um, got to my question of whether it was intended, the Montreal Protocol, to halt the growth of the ozone hole or to somehow shrink the hole. I mean, ideally, of course, but um, is well, it is it sure. assumed we will shrink the hole eventually? It'll heal, or, or what do you think is going to happen? Right, so the an important lesson um, from this whole thing is that um, certain compounds can last a long time in the atmosphere. So, for example, sea salt is not a problem because it only lasts in the atmosphere for a day or less. However, the chlorine in these industrial compounds lasts about a century in the atmosphere. And, you know, if you have something that lasts a long time, it'll just build up and accumulate and build up and accumulate until it, you know, becomes a substantial amount of stuff there. And so that was the problem with these industrial compounds that they built up over time. But once they were banned, 
they didn't just go away because they have this 100-year lifetime. Um, and incidentally, this is an even worse, worse problem for carbon dioxide because it has a lifetime in the atmosphere and ocean system that approaches 100,000 years. You know, so when you put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere from your driving home today or something from your car, um, about 20% of that CO2 will still be in the atmosphere 10,000 years from now. Well, that's really hard to get your brain around, isn't it? And I was going to ask you if there's any lesson from the Montreal Protocol that we can apply to um, our carbon problem. <laughs> and I wanted to segue right. to talking about global warming because of these two reports that were quite sobering, the IPCC report and the one Joe mentioned that said the oceans are actually not absorbing as much CO2 as we thought and it's going back out uh, into the atmosphere. So we've been given some rather sobering news that the scientists had kind of miscalculated. And how could you apply what you guys, you know, the model that you use that incorporated new discoveries. I mean, ideally, you just ban fossil fuels because they're p the biggest part of the problem. Um, what else do, did we learn that we could apply to this situation, if anything? Uh, sure. Well, the first problem here is observing something that's happening in the atmosphere. You know, so we observed the ozone hole unexpectedly. We, we didn't expect a problem we could observe until the middle of this century in the future. Um, but we observed something very big happening. And the other thing that happened somewhat coincidentally is that um, DuPont Corporation, which was making most of these compounds, realized that their patents were expiring, and therefore they weren't going to be able to make a lot of money out of these gases. And so it would be to their advantage to ban them so that they could then make other gases which they could patent and make money from. And so industry switched over from being opposed to regulating these gases to being in favor of it. And so it wasn't just a bunch of scientists saying we needed to solve this problem. Industry was behind it also. You know, and right now, where we are right now, the ozone hole is not recovered. Uh, Mid-latitude ozone has not recovered. The only thing that's starting to recover clearly is ozone at 40 kilometers above the surface, which is somewhat... Um, odd because that was a place we expected to see the problem and instead we're seeing the recovery there but people don't care about that they care about the surface because that's you know we, we have to worry about how much light gets all the way through all the ozone to the ground because that's what um, allows the um, ultraviolet light to get to um, to you and cause problems and you know we can't see that models suggest that we'll start to, to see clear recovery from that in the next few decades. Right now we can see tantalizing hints that the ozone hole is starting to form a little bit later in the year and that some of the variability we've been seeing that makes it hard to tell what's happening is because of volcanic eruptions that happen every year or two, which is masking some of the slight tendency to recover. So right now the ozone hole is not recovering. Mid-latitude ozone hole is not, not mid-latitude ozone loss is not recovering. There's a hint or signs, data suggesting it is recovering at high altitude. Um, so, but models say it's going to recover. The problem with CO2 is that um, the lifetime is so long that we can't wait to see the worst effects of global warming. You know, there are obvious effects right now happening that um, you know almost everybody. Uh, can tell 
uh, just from their life that things are getting warmer you know like here in colorado you know and my sense of things is it's just not as cold as it was the snow is not starting to fall as early as it used to and spring is coming earlier than it used to and of course those are all anecdotal but we know from temperature measurements across the world that the earth is warming up and it's warm, warming up to you know temperatures that are higher than those that have occurred in you know many many thousands of years so this is not some sort of natural fluke that we're looking at here we're we're well above the signal to noise in the temperature rise even more obvious are satellite photographs of ice in the arctic i mean there's this is you know visual pictures you can see the ice in the arctic and you know it's just not uh continuous through the summer like it used to be there are ships that have managed to sail across there now which is a hundred of year long dream of people to sail across an ice-free arctic um, you know, it probably won't be totally ice-free until uh, the latter half of this century, depending on how much carbon dioxide remains there. At any rate, we're in a problem now where we're dealing with something with a really long lifetime. You know, what we put there is going to stay there, and the effects of the CO2 we've already put there have not fully been realized yet. Ice is melting, and it's going to keep melting, uh, and the temperatures are warming, and as the ocean heat comes back into the atmosphere, it's going to keep warming even if we stop adding CO2. And so the effects from what we've already done are going to gather and get more significant as time goes on. And that's a concern that most scientists have is that we don't know what all these effects are. And many people in this field are concerned that the polar ice sheets will um, drift out of balance and start melting slowly. It may take hundreds of years, maybe even thousands of years for them to completely melt, but we may not be able to stop this process by um, banning carbon dioxide 100 years from now or even 50 years from now. We're worried that we will lose control of the system over the next coming decades, and even if we stop the CO2, then... Um, the world will just become free of uh, polar ice sheets, which is a normal state of the Earth. Normally, the Earth does not have polar ice sheets. In the last 600 million years, when life has been out of the land, um, ice sheets have only been around about 10% of the time. So it's abnormal for the Earth to have these polar ice sheets. <laughs> so we're kind of in a we're kind of in an exceptional period right now. Then. Um, say, Brian, uh, bouncing back just a second uh, to the ozone thing, just because, hey, we're in California and big ag is big. <laughs> uh, right. I remember we were having a dinner with various people up in Norway, I think. Joe Farman, the guy with the British Antarctic Survey who discovered <laughs> this problem, uh, told me that the thing that we could do the quickest, with the quickest result, for healing the ozone layer or getting a good start on that would be to ban methyl bromide. And uh, that's a chemical that is officially, technically banned uh, for, you know, fumigating crops. However, in this area, it keeps getting exceptions. And, you know, they're developing other stuff. They're using methyl iodide now. But uh, mm -hmm. what do you know about that issue from afar? Um, sure, it was used for fumigating strawberries, for example. 
and um, you know it was important to agriculture. Um, and uh, but bromine is a very powerful. Um, it's even more reactive with ozone than chlorine is, and so bromine um, was um, restricted in its uses. And um, you know I don't know the details of the story of bromine at the moment, but people are not concerned that I know of about bromine doing something unexpected. There are um, some unexpected uh, releases of CFC-11, um, which um, was banned by the Montreal Protocol directly, and carbon tetrachloride, which people used to use for dry cleaning. You know, and so these seem to have some sources that are still around. And oh, that's the East Asia story we've been hearing about? Yes, that's right. So there's something perhaps accidentally um, re releasing these gases in the midst of making something else. Um, we don't really quite know where they're coming from. Um, so I think maybe the more important point here is that um, the science community is very carefully monitoring all these gases from satellites and aircraft and balloon measurements. And, um, you know, if, if something is not doing what's expected, people um, note that and try to figure out where is it coming from. And uh, they're clearly successful in seeing some of these releases that are ongoing at the moment. And undoubtedly, these will get taken care of because nobody in the world wants to destroy the ozone layer. Uh, we'll all be affected by that. So, Brian, you are an expert in aerosols, which most people, you know, know as when you spray something, it's in an aerosol, it's in tiny particles. Um, there's been a lot of talk as the consequences of global warming become more dire as we read about them. There seems to be sort of a desperation taking hold among some quarters to geoengineer our way, if not out of it, to um, give us a breathing room so that we can solve uh, mm -hmm. the, the weaning ourselves off the fossil fuel problem. So could you talk about the particular one that is about aerosols, which is putting sulfur in the upper atmosphere to shield the Earth from uh, mm -hmm. the hottest rays? Can you, can you talk about the pros and cons, if there are any pros, to this proposal from your perspective as an aerosol expert? Sure. So geoengineering is more than an idea. We are geoengineering the planet now by dumping all this carbon in the atmosphere. So we have purposefully change the climate of the earth people have known about this since the 1880s and we've certainly known that we are doing it ourselves since the 1970s and we've done nothing about that so purposeful geoengineering is already happening on the earth by this carbon release now some people have said well volcanoes cool the planet back off uh, so we have a natural phenomena that we know of that can cool the earth and uh, counterbalance the carbon dioxide warming uh, and the methane warming, there's other things in, by just carbon dioxide. Um, and uh, so that's one solution. There is, by the way, another solution that's already happened. The Montreal Protocol banned a bunch of minor gases that were greenhouse gases, and so the United States has already offset some of the warming by banning these other gases. The problem with the um, aerosols is just like volcanic eruptions, uh, you know, that you would see the effect. It would make the sky look a dull gray all the time, sort of like Los Angeles um, does. And you wouldn't be breathing it directly, particularly, um, but it would do that. 
another problem with it is that um, the carbon dioxide greenhouse effect and the other greenhouse gases are so powerful that by the end of the century, um, we won't be able to counterbalance them with um, putting sulfuric acid aerosols into the atmosphere by using the sulfur that's currently being released. So right now there's huge releases of sulfur into the atmosphere and burning coal and burning petroleum and other things that we burn that have sulfur in them, um, automobile fuels. Um, so we've carefully taken the sulfur out of as many of these as we can, but we're nevertheless emitting quite a bit of sulfur. Um, but right now we could put an amount of sulfur into the upper atmosphere, into the stratosphere, that would be very small compared to our total emissions, um, maybe a couple percent of our total emissions of sulfur into the lower atmosphere could be moved into the upper atmosphere and we could lower, reduce the rate of increase of temperature. But by the end of the century, we'd have to put 100% of our sulfur emissions into the stratosphere. Um, so I think this is totally impractical that this is going to solve the problem um, just from the industrial financial point of view. But it's also not likely it's going to happen from the political point of view. I mean, there are some countries, Russia, for example, that would probably be perfectly happy if the earth warmed up. And, you know, this is the largest area country in the world, but most of it is so cold that it's not useful for agriculture and things like that. They'd probably be happy if it were warmer. Um, you know, so there are going to be political conflicts over geoengineering, uh, which violates treaties that are already in place, um, for that matter. So there'd be a tremendous conflict over that. Didn't you also say also, there would be like 10 million, uh, I can't remember how many plane flights it would take to get it up there, but it was so many that the plane flights alone, did you say, would be contributing to global warming just by their sheer magnitude of number of them? Yes, it'd probably take about a million airplane flights a year to put the amount in now you would need to stop global warming, which is, you know, there's... I think 3 million landing and takeoffs in the United States every year now, uh, perhaps a little more than that. Um, so it's, it's not like a million airplane flights is impossible. Of course, they'd have to be heavy tankers or something like that, or airplanes that don't even exist at the moment because of the high altitude you need. So they have to be a huge infrastructure um, development in building airplane, airplanes that could deliver this stuff. Every time I hear you say any of this, Dr. Toon, I keep thinking of all the creativity and energy that could be going into retooling our entire infrastructure for solar and wind. Why aren't we putting our energy there instead of these fantastic, you know, let's build a new airplane to put sulfur in the atmosphere. Why don't we build a new economy that's based on solar and wind? How about that idea? Touche. <laughs> exactly. Plus, the, the sulfur problem, will putting sulfur in the stratosphere will never solve the acidification of the oceans. You know, the carbon dioxide goes in the oceans, it becomes carbonic acid like Coca-Cola, and, you know, eats up coral and, um, you know, lots of things, plankton and stuff like that, don't want to have the ocean acidified. So the best solution by far is to, um, is to not put the carbon in the atmosphere, and, um, you know, there are many ways to solve this problem is to, you know, don't burn coal. There's no way we can burn all the coal that we have in the United States now and not make a really bad problem in the future for ourselves. So we're going to have to leave it in the ground. And the same is true with most of our petroleum. We're just not going to be able to use that stuff. So we should be making a transition to renewables. Um, it may be possible that we can sequester some of the carbon dioxide emissions 
um, from um, plants that burn coal or burn um, agricultural products or something like that. Maybe there's some way to bury it. You know, but the amount of material that you have to bury, every American is going to have to bury an elephant or two every year. Uh, you know, that's the size of the problem. I don't have room in my backyard to bury an elephant or two every year. Um, <laughs> is this, uh, are you talking uh, carbon carbon removal from the atmosphere? Or uh, let's see, what, what, what? Well, the average American's putting in about five tons of carbon every year. Um, you know, I'm not quite sure how much an elephant weighs, but I, in my mind, that's about two elephants. So if you're putting in two elephants worth of carbon, and, and of course, when you bury it, it's going to have oxygen on it, so it's going to weigh even more than that, uh, than the carbon number. You know, you, if you want to bury it, and that's the way you want to get rid of it, you're going to have to bury a couple of elephants every year for every American to stop the carbon dioxide from going up. And we don't uh, really have the, that technology yet, do we? No, there are some demonstration plants around that are trying to do this, and I'm sure it's technically feasible to put the uh, gas or some liquefied form of it into the ground um, and replace oil where it's been removed from fracking or something like that. Um, but, you know, you have to keep it there, too. It has a 100,000-year lifetime. You can't let it leak. You know, mm. If you have even a tiny leak, it'll just come right back out for you. And uh, see, we'll have gotten nowhere. And it doesn't do any good to, like, you know, feed it to algae and then um, grow a bunch of algae either. And then, you know, then you just have to bury the algae. You can't um, burn them again because that doesn't actually remove the CO2. You have to bury it somewhere. Yeah. We've actually talked a little bit on this show about the ideas of carbon dioxide removal. A lot of people consider it hopelessly you know, impractical. Uh, I think it, we're going to have to somehow make it practical. <laughs> uh, elephants be damned. What about uh, massive <laughs> replanting of the earth with growing things that bind carbon? I mean, that would be a Yeah, that doesn't work because the um, amount of land you'd have to put into trees is so large that it isn't really practical. Plus, the trees will die and release the carbon dioxide. So that's just a temporary storage system. You know, you might be able to make it into something like limestone um, or, you know, gypsum, some kind of, you know, industrial thing that is a mineral that you could build stuff out of, you know, lots of, um, um, uh, you know, things like that might not decay into carbon dioxide again. They might just eventually become buried somewhere in some garbage dump. Um, but there's still a, a massive amount of material there that you have to deal with. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, uh, while we still have you, Brian, uh, we've got about eight more minutes maybe before the a little bit of oddball stuff at the end of the hour. Uh, let's talk about the ultimate geoengineering project, namely one of your main claims to fame, um, nuclear winter. Um, this is kind of a uh, horrible, horrific topic. And unfortunately, uh, Dr. Toon here says he's now again getting substantial grant funding, or at least there are <laughs> grant funds available to study nuclear winter, I guess, given the climate, so to speak, of our political international uh, scene nowadays. Uh, and there is a TED Talk that Brian did uh, on uh, nuclear winter. If you just type in, 
Brian Toon, that's T-O-O-N, like Toontown in that movie, Roger Rabbit, I think. Uh, Brian Toon TED Talk. <laughs> uh, you can get, uh, what is it, a 15-minute TED Talk about, uh, it's all about the uh, joys of nuclear war and its effects on the atmosphere. But, Brian, why don't you talk a little bit about that? And um, the, the good news was that before this happened, and hopefully it can happen again, you, you guys impressed... Uh, he, he worked with Carl Sagan, was, was among a handful of people who enlightened the world to this problem where nobody can win. Everybody is going to lose horribly because of the atmospheric effects of nuclear exchange. Uh, well, anyway, Gorbachev and Reagan uh, reduced greatly the amount of weaponry. And now, you know, the current guy is trying to increase it again radically. So, Brian, go ahead and hold forth on that for a while. Sure, and then... Um, 1980s, in the middle of 1980s, there were about 70,000 nuclear weapons between Russia, the Soviet Union at that time, and the United States. And there's another thousand sitting around in Britain and France and China, and now India, Pakistan, and North Korea, and Israel. Um, at any rate, uh, you know, Gorbachev and Reagan, who was at the time a Trumpian kind of figure, he scared everybody to death over his bellicose kind of approach to things. Um, but in fact, Reagan personally was totally opposed to nuclear weapons. He thought they were immoral and um, that you'd be gotten rid of. And, uh, you know, we explained to them in the normal way that scientists do by doing radio interviews like this and having Carl Sagan on the TV and talking to Congress and other things. Um, you know, and Reagan clearly understood this. He He has quotes in which he understood the physics and the, the parallel with volcanoes erupting and causing climate to cool and uh, said that this just isn't right for people to do this. And like Gorbachev said, it was immoral for people who knew of this danger to not do something about it. So they um, agreed upon a treaty to ban intermediate-range nuclear weapons and um, Every president of the United States since Reagan has reduced nuclear weapons. And every president of um, Russia or the Soviet Union since Gorbachev has reduced nuclear weapons. So we're now we're down to about 15,000 of them in the world, um, which is still a lot. Um, Russia only has 200 cities with more than 100,000 people. The United States has 300-and-something cities with 100,000 people. Uh, you know, why do you need 15,000 nuclear weapons to bomb 500 cities? Uh, you know, that just doesn't make any sense. Uh, What's so the anyway, minimum that, number that, if we use them, that would cause a nuclear winter? Is there some minimal? Not that we want any of them ever used, but, I mean, is there a threshold mm -hmm. that you discovered that would have tripped it off uh, kind of indelibly? Well, it, this wouldn't be a true nuclear winter, but we found that if Pakistan and India had a war... Um, you know, right now they have over 100 nuclear weapons each. We don't know how big they are. But if they had a, if they had a war and used half of their arsenals, maybe 50 each, um, you know, that could um, cause a global climate change that would put us back at the end of the last ice age uh, and, you know, cause a significant crop loss around the world, which would lead to mass starvation. Um, so you don't need very many of these weapons to threaten everybody on the planet. Uh, and probably the most relevant part of this story for people to know is that um, 
Trump and Putin are planning to talk about this in the next few months um, because Trump has announced that he wants to withdraw from the elimination of these um, intermediate-range nuclear weapons, as well as withdraw from the treaties that Bush, George Bush, and um, Barack Obama agreed upon, which limited the number of nuclear weapons, strategic weapons, in both countries to about 2,000 each. So what does it mean that he wants to withdraw from that? Um, some of his comments, some of Ms. President Trump's comments have been, oh, we need to rebuild our arsenals. Why did we ever build them down? But other comments he's made indicate that he understands that these things are just a waste of money. You can't use them, and they cost incredible amounts of money to sustain them. And many of the sustaining elements are out of date and falling apart and have created all kinds of scandals in the military in the last few years because people are more bored sitting there looking at these missiles. They know they're never going to launch. So I think we should be hopeful that um, President Trump's real motive here is the same as previous Republican presidents to push these things down to much smaller numbers. Um, you know, right now it only takes about a half an hour or less for a missile from Russia to reach the United States. So President Trump could be told at any moment that there had been a launch of Russian missiles toward the United States, and he would have only tens of minutes to decide was this real, was it a mistake, was it some kind of a hacker who got into systems? He'd have only a tens of minutes to decide if it was a mistake or if he should launch our missiles back at Russia, which would undoubtedly destroy the bulk of the human population. You know, so that's, if I were president, I wouldn't want to be in that situation. And if I were a human uh, being on the planet, I wouldn't want him making that decision. And let's hope he has people around him wiser than he is in order to save the rest of us. Unfortunately, we'll have to leave it there. This has been a fascinating yeah, conversation. Suspense. <laughs> leave you in suspense. We appreciate your expertise, and let's hope that... Um, once again, your information and research informs wise policy decisions that humans make that will inevitably save not only our own bacon, but the rest of life on the planet. So thank you for everything you've done thus far, and, and may thanks. you continue to have the ear of the leaders of the world. And thanks so much for sharing your expertise and wisdom with us. And uh, yeah, great. Great, great talking with you again, yes. Brian. Thank you so much. That was Brian Toon. He is Professor of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences at the University of Colorado at Boulder. If you missed the whole of our conversation, you can find it on our website. PlanetWatchRadio.com. And, um, hey, uh, just a couple of oddball stuff items because we're about three minutes from the end of the hour. But we just passed Halloween. And Halloween, is, or thereabouts, is uh, one of the four cross-quarter days of the year where you're midway between an equinox and a solstice. If you look at a calendar, you count the same number of days from, you know, fall equinox to Halloween as there are from Halloween to the upcoming winter solstice. So another cross-quarter day, by the way, is Groundhog Day in February. Another one is May Day and so on. Okay, well, meet meteor showers couple of great meteor showers coming up uh the, the torrid not torrid like 
hot, but out of Taurus, T-A-U-R-U-S. Not the car, but the Constellation. Uh, I don't even know if they make Taurus cars anymore, Ford. But anyway, uh, they are, it's a broad, peaked, uh, long-lasting meteor shower that produces fireballs. Big, bright, long, slow, orange shooting stars. Not very many of them. You know, maybe... 10 an hour you got to wait you got to be patient but just go out any time of night and look towards the east in the early evening where you see that fuzzy patch of stars called the pleiades or the seven sisters below that there's a v of stars which is the nose of taurus the bull with the bright star aldebaran so anyway the torrid meteors uh, over the next couple of weeks great time to be looking and the peak might be tonight and or tomorrow night finally uh here is a lesson a, a and i have not heard any pundits, commentators, anybody say this. I mean, we all talk about go vote, but what about all these jaded millennials and whoever else that make up all these lame excuses for not voting? Look, I bet you a whole lot of people, among other things, don't vote if they think, well, I just don't know all the issues. I have not had time to get familiar with all the issues. You don't have to vote on everything on the ballot, folks. Tell this to everybody. You don't have to vote on every. It's better to vote on just one thing that you actually know and care about than to not vote at all. We need your votes on that. So, so get out there and vote and tell everybody else, you know, bring all your friends. Have a, have a party. Get some whatever you like to eat or drink afterwards or, and or before. If anything <laughs> we've said in the past hour about the future of our planet hit home for you, Think about electing people that are going to do something about those things. And thank you for listening. This has been Planet Watch for another episode. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. Keep an eye on the sky. And thank you so much for tuning in. See you next time.